Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Please take your copy of the scripture and turn to Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. <clears throat> Colossians 1, 15. In case you haven't figured it out, I'm pinch hitting for Dr. Aiken, who was pinch hitting for Dr. Merritt. Uh, but glad to have the opportunity to teach one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Years ago, I was studying at a table at the library at the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, and a guy came and sat down beside me, and I struck up a conversation with him and began to direct the conversation towards spiritual matters. The guy told me that he had been a Navy SEAL, and he had traveled all over the world, and in his travels, he had experimented with all of the world's major religions, and that he had finally settled on Hinduism because he said Hinduism teaches that there are many paths to God, and all religions are basically the same, and that was my experience. I think they're all essentially alike. And I said, well, I recognize that there are some superficial similarities between the major world religions and things like morality and ethics, but don't overlook their profound differences. He said, like what? I said, well, take, for example, the claims of the founders of these world religions. Muhammad claimed to be a prophet of God. Moses claimed to be a prophet of God. But Jesus Christ did not just claim to be a prophet of God, he claimed to be the God of the prophets. He looked at me like I had lost my mind, like I was literally insane. And so I asked his permission to take the New Testament and look at some evidence that Jesus is, in fact, God. We saw that Jesus claimed to be God, that the Father declared that he is God, that the apostles testified that he is God, that the prophets foretold that 
the Messiah is God, that angels praise Jesus as God, that demons acknowledge that Jesus is God, and his miracles prove that he is God. And after about half an hour of that discussion, he held up his hands as if in surrender and said, okay, okay, it's there. How could I, of all people, have missed that? I said, what do you mean, you of all people? And he said, believe it or not, I'm the son of a Southern Baptist pastor. I heard my dad preach every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night for the first 18, 20 years of my life, and I have never heard what you just showed me is the essential claim of the Christian faith. I wish I could say that this was a rare experience. It's not been at all. Only a few years ago, I conducted a survey of about 1,000 college freshmen at a Baptist college in the Deep South to see how well they understood the essential claims of Christianity. 98% of these college freshmen claimed to be Christians. 60% of them grew up in the Baptist churches of our state, and yet one-third did not know that the New Testament and historic Orthodox Christianity teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Most of these students believed that Jesus was just a special man who was endowed with amazing powers by the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless a mere man. How can this be? Well, I'm afraid that we have overlooked the great doctrine of the deity, the Godhood of Jesus Christ in our personal witness. We have neglected it from our Christian pulpits. We have treated the deity of Christ as if it were some erudite doctrine only to be discussed by ivory tower theologians, when in fact it is the fundamental claim of the Christian faith. It's time for us to reclaim this great doctrine of Jesus' identity as Almighty God and proclaim it boldly again. And there's no better place to begin doing that than Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The Apostle Paul has just urged believers to thank God for what Jesus has done, and then he transitions to praising Jesus for who he is. And as he praises Jesus, he essentially breaks into song. Uh, most scholars are convinced that Colossians 1:15 through 20 is an example of an early Christian hymn, a song, because of its lofty prose, its unusual vocabulary, its rhythm, and its structure. Later on in Colossians, Paul will say that believers should sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the glory of God, and this is an example of that very kind of thing. And as Paul expresses this great hymn, it is clear that it is thoroughly Christocentric. This Christian hymn is about Jesus from start to finish, as our modern-day hymns must be. In this hymn, consisting of two stanzas, the Apostle Paul first praises Jesus as Lord of creation. That is the universe. And then in the second stanza, he praises Jesus as Lord of new creation, the redeemed, transformed people of God that we call the church. 
An old Christian hymn says, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. And that's a pretty good summary of this hymn in Colossians 1. Jesus is Lord of everything and Lord over everyone. He is the one before whom men and angels must bow. First of all, Jesus is Lord of creation. Paul begins in verse 15 by saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now the word image means portrait, uh, reflection, uh, visible manifestation. The idea is that Jesus is the per picture perfect representation of who God is and what he's like, like Hebrews 1 will even more explicitly describe. If you want to know who God is and what he's like, look to Jesus. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, all of the intangible qualities of deity are expressed in tangible form. He is the visible form of the invisible God. And Paul says something very amazing here when he describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. Other references to the image of God in Scripture express things a bit differently. For example, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we read that God created man in his image and after his likeness. And later on in Colossians chapter 3, we will see that the believer is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. Now, I want you to note the prepositions in both of those constructions in the image of God, according to the image of God. But when Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ, he drops all prepositions. He doesn't say Jesus is in or according to the image of God like we are. He says Jesus is the very image of God. And by that, Paul is clearly stating that Jesus is the one with whom God the Father spoke in Genesis chapter 1 when he said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Jesus is being described here as the very agent of human creation. It is through his power that every one of us in this room exists today. Paul goes on to describe Jesus as king over all creation. He says he is the firstborn over, some translations say, of all creation. I don't really like the translation of. Although it's technically correct, I'm afraid it's prone to be misread in English. When we read in English, firstborn of all creation, our automatic assumption is that this firstborn is part of creation itself. That would be an interpretation called the partitive genitive. When in reality, as the Christian Standard and NIV translate this, this is clearly an example of the genitive of subordination. And here's how the Greek world rule works. If a head noun, in this case firstborn, is a title of authority, the genitive phrase that modifies it, in this case of all creation, typically describes the realm over which the authority figure 
exercises his sovereignty and rule. So the key question here is firstborn a title of authority? Absolutely, for several reasons. One is the law of primogeniture. It said the firstborn son had a special status in the family. He would receive a double portion of the inheritance if the father died. And upon the father's death, he would then become the head of the family, exercising authority over his brothers and sisters. And even more importantly, the title firstborn is clearly a title of authority because of its use in Psalm 89:27, where there it refers to the Davidic king, a picture of the coming Messiah. God says, I will make him my firstborn and then he defines what firstborn means. I will make him my firstborn, the greatest of the kings of the earth. So is firstborn a title of authority? Absolutely. It is a title of supreme authority. It's describing the greatest of all kings. Consequently, when Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, he is describing him as the ruler who exercises authority over the entire created world. And then Paul explains why Jesus is qualified to be the king of creation. He can be the king of creation because he is the author of creation. He is the agent through whom the Father made everything that has been made. Paul says, by him, everything was created. And he really does mean everything that has been created was made by Jesus. He says, everything in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. All visible earthly things have been made by Jesus Christ. That includes every blade of grass, every leaf on every tree, every drop of rain, every majestic sea, every tiny molecule, every enormous galaxy. All things, great and small, have been made by Jesus Christ. And not only is Jesus the creator of every earthly visible thing, he is the creator of every created, invisible, heavenly thing. And Paul gives us an example by listing four categories of angelic beings. He mentions first the thrones. These were angels that surrounded the throne of God, continually adoring him and praising him. The highest of all the angels in Jewish angelology of the day. He mentions the dominions. Those are bearers of ruling authority. They are angels who supervise the governance of nations and of states. He mentions the rulers. Those are the archangels. Those are the generals and the angelic armies. He mentions authorities. Those appear to be angels who are endowed with special powers to accomplish particular tasks. But what's the most important thing about all this is that in the Jewish angelology of the day, all of these categories ranked highest and greatest over all the angels. 
and Jesus is the creator of every single one. Now, there are some cults that will try to tell you that Jesus is the first creature made by God, the highest of the angelic beings. But the Apostle Paul says, oh, no, Jesus is as superior to the greatest of the angels as the creator is to the creature. He is Lord over all. And not only does Paul say that all things were created through Christ, he adds that all things have been created for Christ. Everything that exists, exists for the Lord Jesus' pleasure and glory. The world was custom made for Jesus Christ. Now, we don't get that because we live typically in a very me-centered universe, and so we might walk out and see a glorious sunset or a beautiful mountain landscape and say, oh, isn't this amazing? God loves me so much. He made all this just for me. Well, don't flatter yourself. He did no such thing. He didn't make all that for your glory and pleasure. He made it for the glory and pleasure of his son. And you and I exist for the glory and pleasure of Jesus Christ also, just as we sang already this morning. Paul continues that Jesus is the eternal one. He says he is before all things. This can be interpreted either locally or temporally. Here I think the context shows that it's a temporal sense. What Paul is telling us is that Jesus existed before any created thing existed. That is, he is eternal. He is without beginning, without end. He has always been and shall always be. And Paul concludes this discussion of Jesus' relationship to the created world by insisting that Jesus is not only the creator of the universe, he is the present sustainer of the universe. Because of the naturalistic worldview in which most of us were brainwashed in state schools, we tend to think of the natural world almost deistically as if they're just natural laws that govern everything and God is essentially hands-off. Paul says, oh no, our God, and his name is Jesus Christ, is directly involved moment by moment in the governance of the universe. He holds everything together. It is because of Jesus' power that molecules bond with one another so that matter even exists. It is because of the power of Jesus Christ that planets revolve around the sun and moons orbit around the planets. It's because of the power of Jesus Christ that we are able to stand on the surface of this earth rather than being flung into outer space as the earth spins at about a thousand miles an hour on its axis. And if Jesus, for even a moment, withheld his power from the universe, the cosmos would become chaos. Planets would drift too close to the sun and be 
incinerated by its blaze. Celestial bodies would collide and crumble. Everything would disintegrate and fall apart, apart from the power that Jesus exercises from moment to moment. The ancient Greeks used to glorify the giant titan Atlas by saying he was the mighty one who suspended the sky on his shoulders and kept it from falling down and crushing the earth. But the power of Jesus Christ that the Apostle Paul describes here dwarfs that of Atlas by comparison because he doesn't only support the sky he orchestrates everything in the entire universe so that it has order and beauty and meaning. But not only is the Lord Jesus the Lord of creation, he is the Lord of new creation. Beginning with the second stanza, Paul shifts, and he begins to describe Jesus' relationship to the redeemed people of God. He begins by saying that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Now, often in Paul's letters, Romans and 1 Corinthians are examples, Paul will describe the church as like a human body. And he describes the believers that compose the church as like the limbs or members of the body, each with particular gifts to perform particular tasks so that the church can fulfill its mission. But here Paul goes beyond all that, and he insists that you and I might be like the limbs of the body, but don't ever forget Jesus is the head. What does he mean by that? Well, the head is that which exercises control over the rest of the body. So the point, first of all, is that Jesus is the power and authority that governs the church. He is the Lord over the church. Not a pastor, not some Christian celebrity, Jesus. But he has something else in mind also, because Paul will tell us later on in Colossians chapter 2 that the head takes in the food that supplies the energy to the rest of the body so that the body can thrive and grow, Colossians 2.19. So what Paul is telling us when he describes Jesus as the head of the body is that he's not only the ruler of the church, the supreme authority over it, but he is the one that causes the church to thrive and to grow. If you see a church that is truly growing spiritually and numerically, I can assure you that it is not to the credit of a charismatic pastor. It is only to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ, for he alone is the head of the body. And then Paul continues, Jesus is the beginning. Contrary to popular opinion, this doesn't just mean that Jesus is the founder of the church. It means far more than that. Remember, there have been a number of allusions in the hymn so far back to Genesis chapter 1, and this is another clear example when Paul describes Jesus as the beginning, he is recalling Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning is the point of origin of all things that have been made. But you'll notice that this reference to Jesus' role in creation isn't in the first stanza, 
that described his relationship to the created world. It's in the second stanza that describes his relationship to the redeemed people of God. And that makes it very clear that Jesus is being described now not just as the author of old creation, but what we might call the author of new creation. The Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew describes the reign of Jesus Christ as Messiah as the palingenesia, which literally means the new genesis, the beginning again. And Paul is saying the same thing here. Jesus is the beginning of new creation. Now, why is that so important? Uh, we know from our study of the Old Testament that the earth was made in perfection. The things that God made were good, very good, but then sin entered the world and devastated and corrupted everything. Instead of peace, there was now enmity. Instead of eternal life, there was now corruption and death. Instead of goodness, there was evil. Everything has been marred and defaced and ruined as a consequence of Adam's sin and ours. But the New Testament insists that when Jesus comes in all of his glory, he will recreate this fallen world and restore it to its original perfection. We see a picture of that at the end of the book of Revelation where Jesus sits upon his heavenly throne and says, Behold, I make all things new. And suddenly there is no pain or sickness or death or tears. But what Paul tells us here is that this miracle of new creation that will be performed by Jesus Christ doesn't have to wait completely until his glorious return. He has begun the miracle of new creation at his resurrection when he was, Paul says, the firstborn from among the dead. What Paul is telling us is that through Jesus' powerful resurrection from the dead, he gives assurance that we will one day be raised from the dead and rid of our bodily corruption, the corruption of our flesh. And he is reminding us that through our union with Jesus Christ and his resurrection, that we have enjoyed spiritual resurrection. We have been given new life with a new character that seeks to please and glorify God rather than live for self and for sin. What Paul is telling us is that the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead has been unleashed in the world here and now to transform us from the inside out and make us the people that God wants us to be. That's why Paul can explain in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Consequently, Paul says Jesus holds first place in everything. He is Lord of creation. He is Lord of new creation. What else is there? Jesus is preeminent over all. And Paul can't let it go. So he 
brings his hymn to a climax with two more powerful proofs of Jesus' preeminence. And his proofs are incarnation and reconciliation. First of all, he says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. His fullness is God's own fullness, residing in the person of Jesus Christ. And just in case we missed that, Paul will clarify that in Colossians 2.9, where he says that Jesus was all the fullness of deity residing in bodily form. His point is that everything that makes God, God made its home in the body of Jesus Christ. He was not kind of God, almost like God. He was fully God. Now, it would have been amazing enough if Paul had said, deity resides in Jesus in bodily form. That would have clearly shown that Jesus is fully God and fully man, deity incarnate, God in human flesh. But Paul couldn't stop there. He says the fullness, the complete sum of God resided in Jesus in bodily form. And as if that's still not enough, he compounds it even further by saying all the fullness of deity resides in Jesus in bodily form. I can't imagine any more powerful way to articulate the deity of Jesus Christ, his identity as the Almighty God. Now think for a minute with me from an Old Testament perspective about what a mind-boggling statement this is. Do you remember in 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon has spent years and years of great sacrifice laboring con to construct a temple for the glory of Yahweh. And he finally comes to that moment of dedication. And he looks at this impressive temple. And as he reflects on the greatness of God, suddenly it's not so impressive anymore. He recognizes that it is completely unworthy a place for God to descend in all of his glory. And as Solomon prays his prayer of dedication, he says, but will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Wow. The temple can't house God in his greatness. The earth can't house God in his greatness. The highest heavens can't house God in all of his greatness. And now Paul tells us the wonder of all wonders, that all the fullness of deity, that the temple and the earth and even the highest heavens cannot contain has somehow been concentrated and compressed to reside in the person of Jesus Christ. Wow. And after describing the wonders of incarnation, Paul goes on to describe the wonders of reconciliation. He refers to the bloody cross of the Lord Jesus by which he made peace between sinners and the holy God. That would have been amazing enough 
If Jesus had been a, a mere perfect man giving himself as a sacrifice for repentant, believing sinners. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that one who died on the rugged cross, who shed his blood to atone for our sins, was more than a mere man, yet even a perfect man. He is the God-man, deity incarnate. It's this very one who created the world, who made the angels, even the very highest of them, and so forth, who offered the sacrifice described in verse 20 to reconcile sinners to the heavenly judge. This is one of many passages in the New Testament that emphasize the deity of the crucified one. Some theologians are a little bit squeamish about this because they think it might imply the heresy of Thelpassianism, but I am afraid that in trying to stay away from Thelpassianism, we have gravitated toward another heresy called Serinthianism, which almost implies that Jesus laid his deity aside at the moment of his crucifixion. And the New Testament insists, no, that it was as the Son of God, it was as deity incarnate that Jesus died on the cross for us. And Paul not only says that here, Peter says it in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 3.15 when he says, you killed the author of life. Now reflect on that irony for a minute. Rebellious sinners took the life of the one who gave life. We see it also in 1 Corinthians 2.8 where Paul writes that sinners crucified the Lord of glory. Lord of glory is a title for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul is stressing that it was as Yahweh incarnate that Jesus offered the sacrifice for sin. We see the same thing in Acts 20, 28, when Paul preaches to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, and he urges them to be shepherds of, quote, the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, the antecedent of the pronouns he and his in the Greek text is clearly God, so we could legitimately translate this, the church of God, which God bought with God's own blood. Paul does not want there to be any doubt that the Savior who gave himself for our sins is none other than the maker of all things, the Almighty in human form. That's one of the reasons that I love the hymns of my favorite hymn writer, Isaac Watts. He's constantly emphasizing the deity of the crucified one in the way I see in the New Testament scriptures themselves. An example would be at the cross where he says, Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Another example would be when I survey the wondrous cross where he writes, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. 
Uh, why does the New Testament, the historic Orthodox Church, our creeds, and even our own Baptist confession, the Baptist faith in Message 2000, insists that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Because that is the central confession of true Christianity. And we see that in Colossians. In Colossians 2.6, when Paul talks about the conversion of the believers at Colossae, he refers to them receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. And Lord there isn't functioning as a mere title of authority. It's functioning as the name of deity, as the Greek translation of the Hebrew divine name Yahweh or Jehovah. Paul is reminding us in Colossians 2.6, as he does at many other points in his letters, that true Christianity requires the confession of Jesus' identity as God. And yet so many of us have completely missed this. It was years ago now that a Southern Baptist security guard who was working at an industrial plant was trying to witness to a Jehovah's Witness co-worker. And he did it the only way he knew how, by insisting that the Jehovah's Witness needed to come to church with him. And the Jehovah's Witness kept on refusing. But this Southern Baptist man was, was not going to retreat. He knew that he needed to persist. He had attended Southern Baptist churches from infancy. He was the son of a Baptist deacon, the grandson of a prominent Baptist pastor, and so he kept on pushing until finally the Jehovah's Witness said to him in frustration, I am not going to go to your church. I don't belong there. We Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe like you Baptists believe. And the Baptist young man said, well, I don't understand what the problem is. We've had hours and hours of discussion, and I've never been able to identify any differences between your beliefs and mine. And he said, well, let me put it clearly to you. You Baptists believe that Jesus is God, and we adamantly deny that. And the Baptist man said, well, there's your problem, sir. You obviously know nothing about Christianity or Baptist. No Baptist in the world believes that Jesus is God. He might be the son of God, kind of half God, half man, a human being endowed with special power by the Holy Spirit, but certainly not God. Where would you ever get an idea like that? Let me be very blunt with you. If that Southern Baptist man had died that moment, his blasphemies that day ensure that he would have spent eternity in hell. And if that sounds harsh and judgmental, let me ease your minds by telling you that the name of that Southern Baptist man was Chuck Quarles. And those blasphemies were mine. It wouldn't be for years until I heard of the deity of Jesus Christ in a way that I understood. And to be honest with you, when I was introduced to it, I adamantly rejected it. 
And then over a period of years came to understand this is what Scripture teaches. But it frankly wasn't until years and years later that I understood this isn't just some peripheral doctrine for theologians to debate about. This is the central truth of the Christian faith. And there is no salvation apart from the confession of Jesus as Lord in the sense of Almighty God. And when I discovered that, I realized my baptism at the age of five was no baptism at all. And I determined that I was going to walk down the aisle at my local church and request true believer's baptism based on my confession in Jesus as God, Savior, and King. But it was going to be a controversial act. Because for 10 years... I had been a pastor, and for two years, I had been a professor at a Southern Baptist Bible college. Knowing that it was going to be deeply controversial, I went to the president of the school, and I told him what I was about to do. He just shook his head and said, I hope you want. He said, I think you are confused and that you're about to take a step that will later deeply embarrass you. I I think what he meant is what you're about to do is going to deeply embarrass this institution. I said, no, I'm not confused. Actually, I see the gospel with greater clarity now than I ever have before. And I feel that I have no choice but to follow through with believer's baptism because to refuse to do so is to pretend that all those years and years of blasphemy are genuine Christianity, and I can't live that lie. And contrary to his warning, I have never once had an ounce of regret for following through with true believer's baptism after the confession of Jesus' deity. And I can't help but suspect that there are some of you in this very room that need to do the very same thing. You were baptized years and years and years ago, but the fact is you didn't understand the most essential truth of the Christian faith, Jesus' identity. And the one you trusted for your salvation is one who is far less than the New Testament describes. And make no mistake, to worship and believe in a Jesus who is anything less than fully God is not harmless ignorance. It is outright blasphemy. That's why Paul can say in 1 Timothy 1 that though he was a blasphemer, God showed him mercy. He he blasphemed in ignorance, but it was blasphemy nonetheless. And only because of God's great mercy and grace was he forgiven and transformed. I praise God for the mercy and grace that opened my eyes. I pray he's opened your eyes today. And that if he asks, you will humbly obey his commandment to confess and be biblically baptized. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord, forgive us 
for seeing you and worshiping you as anything less than who you truly are. Transform our blasphemy now into genuine Christian praise. Replace the false gospel that we have clinged to with the true gospel, the only one that's any good news at all. And move true believers to humbly obey your commandment to be baptized as disciples. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.